2021 was the year of billionaires taking joyrides to the edge of space. The internet reacted as the world's wealthiest men spent millions of dollars to spend just a few minutes traveling to 100 kilometers above the Earth. Seeing the coverage of these trips got me thinking. Is tourism to space actually on the horizon? And if it is, what will it look like? This is Alpaca My Bags, the responsible travel podcast here to help you travel in a way that's better for you and for the planet. I'm Erin Hines, travel writer, accompanied as always by my producer, Katie Lohr. Today, we're diving into the world of space tourism with Valerie Stimak. Valerie is a travel and space tourism writer featured on sites like Forbes and Lonely Planet. But before we get into the show, I just wanted to point out how excited I am that we're already in season five of the show. If you've been a loyal alpaca pal since day one, we have to thank you for this epic run. We're really glad you're here. Thanks for listening. And if you're new here, go ahead and hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of the epic episodes that we have lined up this season because there's so many good ones. You can also follow us on Instagram, TikTok, or Twitter at at alpacamybagspod. Okay, Katie, I have a really important question for you. Would you go to space? Man, no. Like, I would not go to space. (laughs) Why? I am terrified. I am terrified of anything, like, just... The universe freaks me out, and as soon as I'm off Earth, I am immediately getting existential. I just know there's so much weird, crazy information about how expansive the universe is, and I do not want to be in space. Also, I was literally just watching Star Wars. I was actually watching Kenobi on Disney (laughs) Plus recently, and there's a scene where there's a little getaway pod with a whole bunch of people in it trying to zoom across space while the Empire is shooting at them. And all I could think about was that there's like 50 people in this pod and that's all you got in space. So as soon as like if it was to explode or anything, it's immediate death for everyone. There's nothing out there. It's just immediate death. That's why I don't like it. it And that's why it's a no. It is very easy to die in space. Very, very easy. We don't belong there. Our bodies are not meant to be in space. (laughs) (laughs) It's a no for me, dog, as Randy Jackson says. Okay. You know I love horror movies. I have seen tons of them. Even the like quote unquote scariest horror movies don't really impact me. The movie that scared me the most Gravity. Do you remember that movie? <gasps> yes, that movie is scary. I, I had nightmares about it. I watched it in theaters and I was like, this is a horrible nightmare. I, I never want to be falling out of a spaceship in space. No, thank you. I think we concur. Space is a no, thank you. No, 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 thanks. <laughs> I do. I do have a fun space fact for you, though. A nice palate cleanser, I think. There's lots of really cool facts about space, but I find this one really interesting. Space is completely silent. Because there is no atmosphere, sound literally cannot travel in space. And I think as humans, it's really hard to imagine what zero sound sounds like because we're basically, and I mean, you would know as an audio producer, but basically like sound is always around us. Even unnoticeable little bits of sound space is probably the only environment in the universe where we can actually be immersed in dead silence. It's it's kind of scary. It just adds to the scariness. (laughs) 
This is not a palate cleanser, Aaron. This is still scary news. Oh, man. Okay. My bad. Okay. (laughs) On the topic of space, I do want to tell you about some way that we could travel space right now in some sense that I thought was really cool and I had to tell you about. So are you ready to hear about it? I am. Uh, Here on Earth, two filmmakers, Felix and Paul... Um, created kind of like the first VR experience of the International Space Station. Um, And they won an Emmy for it. And it's called Space Explorers, the ISS Experience. So basically, it's like a VR experience that you can walk through. They set up kind of exhibitions throughout the world. And you can walk through the ISS and like interact with things that are around. But the craziest part is that they made this in collaboration with the ISS, with astronauts, with NASA. And they had to get a astronauts on board, which you and I know are impossible to do. They are the busiest humans on the face of the planet or outside of the planet. (laughs) So they had to get astronauts on board with that, with this whole project. They had to build a camera that could survive space and get it out onto the International Space Station. And because astronauts and everybody who is on the ISS is so busy and has no time to be filming somebody's heckin' VR movie, they had to create some sort of remote control system that they could literally control the camera movements and everything down from NASA in like NASA headquarters. So this whole thing is like, it's a huge project that they created. And now you can kind of experience this VR experience where you can walk through the ISS, see like a pen floating through the air past you. You can walk up to an astronaut and like see what kind of things they're working on. Like it's nuts. I'll pop the link in our show notes for anyone who's interested. Okay, one of the the last big events I went to, I went to the ROM, which is a really famous museum in Toronto, and they do these um, night events where the museum is open like late into the night, and it's it's mostly like adult focused, but they do really interesting exhibitions, and they did an exhibition that was space focused. So Luke and I went with my parents, we got some drinks, and we just wandered around like looking at items from space like we got to see part of an asteroid and we got to pick it up and it was so wild how heavy it was it was a really cool exhibition so listen I'm afraid of going to space but I am still interested in seeing things from space and learning about space just here on earth (laughs) okay before we dive into the episode I just want to riff off of something you mentioned which is that Katie and I tried so hard to get a astronaut on this episode. Yes. It is impossible. And you and I, we've reached out to a lot of people and we've had a lot of success with getting people on this <laughs> podcast. This is one of the only times we've we've fully failed. And I'm quite upset. Astronauts are incredibly hard to get in touch with and incredibly hard to book. And all of their contact information is like hidden from the world. Yeah, because I guess they're doing important things. Even William Shatner, we thought about coming on the podcast to talk about his experience, but his Twitter bio says no podcast. So that kind of cut him out of the equation immediately. Yeah, so I'm sorry, Alpaca Pals. We tried and we will continue to try. If we, I will continue to email and send follow ups. Maybe we can release like a little follow up episode one day. If we get an astronaut on our podcast, I think we've hit the true measure of success. Because that means astronauts think our podcast is important enough to join. (laughs) (laughs) 
I have been wanting to do this episode, Valerie, for so long, and I could not find the right person. And when I found you, I was so happy. I emailed you immediately. Yay. I've been I've been here. I've been kicking it. I know. So you've built a career around writing about the stars and space. Of course, lots of people have curiosity about space, but not everyone goes on to make space a daily part of their lives. So on that note, could you share with us what it is that fascinates you so much about the galaxies and tell us maybe one of your absolute favorite facts about space, like a fact that everyone should know? I think my interest in space started when I was a kid. I learned that I would probably never become an astronaut and drifted away from that interest. But I came back to it as a professional traveler when I realized that actually maybe one day normal people like me might get to go to space when space tourism became a real thing, which it officially is. As of 2021, we've sent people to space who were just normal, ordinary civilians. But the fact that I want everyone to know this is this was really hard and it's actually not a space fact, but it's space related. So I hope that counts is that we owe a lot of gratitude to the Arabic astronomers who translated the original ancient Greek astronomy documents that helped us understand the night sky into Arabic and then into modern Greek. So a lot of the astronomy knowledge that we have comes from the Arabic translations of ancient Greek documents. So that's why so many star names have Al at the beginning, like Aldebaran or Algol. These are actually Arabic names because they didn't have a translation for them. Yeah, we owe a lot to the Arabic astronomers and they're rarely mentioned when we talk about it in Western society, but there is a huge debt of gratitude for all of our knowledge that comes from them. I really love that. That's such a good fact. And and you know what? That actually explains the name thing, because I had wondered that about stars, like how they go about creating that system. So in recent years, I've noticed more chatter around sending regular folks up into space. And as you said, that has officially happened now. I'm sure lots of people have heard about the contests that are happening, where people can enter to go to the moon or to even like move to Mars and be the first (laughs) people living on Mars. And as we all know, some billionaires are already paying their way into space. So it definitely seems like I would say in the last like two to three years, there's been a real shift where many of us are realizing, okay, space is closer than it's ever been for regular non-astronaut folks. But I'm hoping you can give us a realistic lowdown. Is space tourism officially here? What's your take? It is here. It's officially here. I would say that we could count July 2021 as the milestone month because that is when both Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin took their first flights with paying passengers. In the case of Virgin Galactic, that was Sir Richard Branson, who paid a whole lot because he founded the company. And then there was Jeff Bezos and his brother. And then they had um, Wally Funk, who was a guest of honor. And then they had one other paying passenger on the Blue Origin flight. So officially, space tourism is here. But as you said, it's it's kind of reserved currently for either those who are very lucky, meaning they uh, apply for a contest and they win, or the very wealthy. And I think we're going to see that be the case for a while longer. Uh, it is not cheap to build a space company, as has been demonstrated by the fact that governments were the only ones who had enough money to do it in the past. And it's only been in the very recent term that we have private companies spending billions of dollars to make it happen. But I think within the... 15 to 50 year window, we'll see the reusability and reliability of rockets drive down the cost sufficiently that we can see prices be much more like what people currently spend to go to Antarctica to take a flight to space, which is a more than a factor of 10 cheaper than it is currently. 
Absolutely. I don't know if you know off the top of your head, but are you able to give us sort of a like a ballpark estimate of how much it costs someone like Jeff Bezos to go up into space? Well, I can tell you what the officially the prices. I can tell you what the prices are for anyone who's selling tickets. So officially, Blue Origin is not yet selling tickets. They have never announced a ticket price. Virgin Galactic started at $200,000. That was over a decade ago. And then they raised it to 250 and got more reservations. And then they just did another round of reservations at $450,000. So definitely not in most people's budgets. And then there are actually alternatives that are not rocket-based. So a lot of people look at the billionaires and the billionaire space race and the rockets and they say, oh, that's the only way to go to space and it's so expensive and nobody can afford it and it's all these billionaires. But there are balloon-based companies that are looking to send capsules up under a balloon to space and those are much more affordable. And I know we're going to chat a little bit more about it later, but they're also much more environmentally friendly because they don't use a lot of fuel to do that. And those ones have been priced in the range of anywhere between about $50,000 and $75,000. So that's much more reasonable. I mean, I still don't have that in my savings account, but (laughs) it's the kind of trip that you could conscientiously choose to save up for and maybe forego a couple spring break trips or whatever and make a reality in your lifetime. It's a bucket list trip. It's always going to be a bucket list trip, but it's, it's moving in the right direction with these alternatives that are out there. Definitely. Just so we can have a little, like a bit of a picture, if you could describe like what someone like Jeff Bezos' experience would have been going to space. Like, what was that trip like? How long did it last? What did it feel like? How far up into space did they actually go? I actually don't know. So can you describe? This is a good test of all my trivia about space tourism. (laughs) So I may be a little bit off. And if anyone is listening who's like a diehard space tourism fan, I apologize (laughs) if my numbers are not exactly perfect. But For Bezos and Branson, they were slightly different because they use slightly different technologies to reach space. But we'll go with Blue Origin because that's who you asked about. They use a rocket. That rocket has a capsule on top, which is where the passengers sit. So the very first experience is liftoff. So that is rocket, ignition, pushed back in your seat, multiple G-forces experienced. And they experience that for several minutes as they rise up away from the Earth, defying gravity. And then at a certain point, the capsule separates from the rocket and continues upward, actually, because it has enough momentum that it continues going up, and the rocket is heavier and thus begins its descent faster. And the rocket, so we've got two pieces now moving separately, the rocket comes back down to Earth and lands, and the capsule continues up until it reaches what's called apogee, which is the top of the arc, and it's in that apogee and the few minutes around that where they're experiencing microgravity or weightlessness. So at that point, everyone can unstrap, they can float around, they can throw Skittles at each other, they can look out the windows at the curvature of the Earth and see the blackness of space. And then eventually the capsule begins coming back down to Earth and it gains more speed and momentum. And at a certain point for a Blue Origin capsule, several parachutes come out and that helps slow the rocket or the the capsule, excuse me, until these um, retro thrusters turn on and they are the last thing that helps slow the capsule way down before it makes impact on the Earth. Wow. How long does this last? I believe of Blue Origin flights are only like 11 minutes, but I'm, I, it's in the 11 to 15 minute window from like launch to, la- to landing. And you asked how high they went. They go to about 104,000 kilometers, 100,000 to 100,010 kilometers. They don't really have an exact number that they reach, but it's over what's called the Kármán line, which is the official boundary of space, which is at 100,000 kilometers. I know. Space just <laughs> trips me out. It just trips me out. Katie knows, like, I just, 
everything anyone tells me about space just blows my mind. I, like, it's unfathomable. That's why I do this, because I love talking about it. It's like, what? How is that possible? <laughs> the fact that it's only, like, up to 15 minutes this entire trip. Mm-hmm. Okay, one thing you mentioned is the blackness of space. And I just wanted to ask you about this, because... I don't know, it intrigued me. And it made me actually think about the one time that I went caving. Alpaca Pals, if you're ever in um, Hungary, they have like really interesting cave systems below Budapest. And you can actually go into them and like climb through them with a guided tour. And I did this. And the thing that I remember the most about it is that there was this one moment where we were very, very deep. We were in this sort of like big open cave and they told us to turn off our lights and just sit in total silence. And the guide told us, this is the most complete darkness you'll ever experience in your life and also the most complete silence. And it was really interesting. Like it actually was very different. I thought to myself, I don't think I ever actually have experienced this much darkness. And so I'm imagining that's the kind of darkness you're describing in space, just like pitch black. I mean, it is black. I, I haven't seen it with my own eyes. So of course, yeah. I, can't, I cannot <laughs> verify this with my own experience. So William Shatner had some great words about this when he returned from his flight on Blue Origin. So I highly recommend checking out that interview. He was deeply moved, which is lovely because William Shatner has guided so many of us in our passion and interest about space at all. But there are stars. So you have to remember that when right. they look at it. It's not like pure black with nothing in it. There's stars out there. So depending on the, the angle that you are looking out into space from Earth, you're going to have a different view and what's in that view. Oh, that's so cool. Alpaca Pals, I want to tell you about a cool new podcast app that has just launched. It's called Circa. C-E-R-C-A. It kicked off with these incredible podcast guides to places all around the world. London, Barcelona, LA, Iceland, Rome, and more. Circa comes from the same people who created Passport, another excellent travel podcast. Inside, there are stories about food, fashion, culture, history, art, sports, everything you want to know, whether you're trying to plan the perfect trip or just want to learn about someplace new. Circa is written and hosted by locals, so people who really know the place. So when Svavar in Iceland tells you how to find the best view of the Aurora Borealis in the entire country, you know he's seen it himself, so he knows where to send you. Take a spin through Circa and hear about the best meals in Barcelona, what it was like to live through the Blitz in London, what to do with your kids in LA, and how to dress to fit in in Paris. You can subscribe to Circa Podcasts, that's C-E-R-C-A, wherever you get your podcasts, or download the Circa app from the App Store. For a limited time, it's all free. Okay, so I've heard that the majority of people say that if they were given the chance for free, they would not go to space. And I will say personally, as much as I'm like fascinated by space, I don't think I would go. I think I'm too afraid. I I just, I can't imagine getting into a spaceship. I just, I cannot imagine it. So I wanted to ask first, if you would go to space. And second, 
Do you think the general public is ready for this? Is there actually a market for space experiences? Yes, I would go to space. That was actually one of the most important questions that my husband and I had to discuss before we got married. Oh my is gosh. If, basically, we had this conversation if he would, quote, let me. I mean, I'm an adult human woman. I do what I want. But I, I, in going to be in a marriage, I have to talk about things before I just decide to do them. And it was basically like, if I went to space and I died in space because of an accident, would you be able to handle telling our child that that was the story of what had happened? Like, And I've tried to be really sort of the worst case scenario, just so that we could actually talk about the realism of going to space, which is that it is dangerous. It is risky. It is less risky than it used to be, but it is still not a no, a zero risk activity. And he said, yes. And so I would say, yes, I would absolutely go. Like if they handed me a ticket, I would go tomorrow. But in terms of the average person, I don't think it's going to become a mainstream interest until we get a lot more media attention. And I don't mean like media, what you see on TV. I mean, media literally meaning the way that society is teaching us what we like and we don't like, which is to say social media influencers, celebrities, people coming home with these experiences and telling them is going to have a huge impact. So that was what's interesting is at the time of recording, Pete Davidson from SNL and Kardashian and et cetera, was just supposed to go on a Blue Origin flight and he actually was unable to do it due to a scheduling conflict. Pete Davidson is the kind of person that's going to sort of change the narrative around space tourism because he is a different person than the majority of people who are going in these first phases. That's critically important both for generational representation, but also for societal representation, different people, different colors, different classes, different industries, you know, we don't just need billionaire business people going to space. That's not going to move the needle on getting public interest and thinking this is something worth investing in, because that's literally what we're doing, right? If you think about it, everyone who complains about Jeff Bezos spending all his money building Blue Origin, well, we we gave him that money when we supported Amazon, right? So it's really our investment through him. And that means we should have a vested interest in the success of that project, because it is important to the rest of us that he doesn't just waste all that money or you know, he's not just doing it for him. He, they, they generally all have a mission behind what they're doing when they're trying to reach space, including scientific research. But going back to getting people interested, I think it's when you can see it on Instagram, when someone live streams it, oh, the FOMO will kick in and everyone will want to get, they'll want to make it happen if they can. And so that'll be where people start to reprioritize. Do I go to Antarctica? Do I go to space? Do I go to Alaska? Do I go to, do I go to space? You know, that'll be the question yeah. you're asking. And it'll change the perception of danger as well, I think. Because once you start seeing people that like you follow and engage with doing it and coming back alive, it changes the perception that, oh, there's danger involved. I also love that you had that discussion with your husband, because this is something I've wondered about when it comes to Everest, because Everest is another one of those like things that I love to read about that I would never actually do. Mm-hmm. And I always find it so wild that someone would let their partner do it, because I told my partner, I was like, if you said you wanted to hike Everest, I would divorce you. Like, <laughs> I could not, I could not watch you go and do that. I would just be too scared. Like I emotionally could not handle it. So it always blows my mind that people with like children and partners like go and do this thing that is so dangerous where your odds are so low that you'll come back. So I I think that's really awesome that you talked with him about it. Would he go with you though? Uh, I think he would. I think he would if we had the means if that were an opportunity. I don't know if he would if we had a child by that point. We don't have any children currently. So just to clarify that point, but I think he would. Yeah, he's pretty adventurous. And I think he would rather be sitting next to me scared than sitting at home scared or sitting and watching the rocket go up. I mean, it's interesting you say that the perception is of danger because I do believe that is the perception and it's really a misperception. Space is astonishingly safe to get to. 
Hmm. I don't have any comparison in that. But if you think about it, uh, um, we've had very few accidents for the number of things we've launched into space, especially with humans aboard, right? There have been hundreds of launches and only three accidents. Three, maybe maybe we can say four. Four. Let's count Virgin Galactic's accident. That's pretty good odds. Uh, it's not as good of odds as, I don't know, never leaving your house. But <laughs> if it's something that has meaning to you, just like with climbing Everest, it is something you're willing to take a higher risk on. And people do that in the stock market, too. There's some things, some people are willing to invest more risky and some people are not. And the perception of the danger is probably amplified because every time one of these takeoffs go wrong, obviously it's it's covered a lot in the news and people see images of it online, which is somewhat traumatizing. And so I think it sticks with people more when they, they can actually visually see what has happened and, and it's talked about so publicly. And most launch, most successful launches are never talked about, right? Yeah, <laughs> They're not yeah. news because they just went <laughs> as planned. So I mentioned before, it's impossible for me to even wrap my head around the concept of space. So the idea of going there is wild. Could you explain what is actually involved with going to space from the perspective of technology? But also, like we've talked about what the flight is like, but what do you do to prepare for it, if anything? Like, would Jeff Bezos have like done anything ahead of time or do you just show up? Yeah, so all of the space programs that currently exist, including commercial ones, do have a training component. Uh, most people arrive a couple days in advance. And the, I think the general, it varies so much from company to company, but the general use of that time is to ensure that you are medically cleared to fly. So you need to be in a certain state of physical health currently. This is all current standards. And there's been some criticism of that because it is much like the first Mercury astronaut program was very restrictive on who could qualify, meaning men of a certain height and a certain weight, and they were typically only of a certain race. The space tourism programs now also have their own criteria, and that means not everyone is going to be eligible. So they they check you out, they make sure you're medically cleared, they make sure you qualify in terms of all of the physical characteristics that you need, and then they typically do some training. So it's like, What's it going to be like in the capsule? If there are any controls that you might have to interact with, what happens? I imagine they do what happens if you go wrong? What happens if the if we come down and the, the hatch doesn't open? All of that is training that's provided. It's not training in the sense of like we're flying this thing to space because the goal <laughs> of these programs is to not have to fly anything. So SpaceX, Crew Dragon, they basically don't have to. The, the Crew Dragon capsule can fly itself anywhere it needs to go. The Blue Origin capsule, I don't even know if it has any controls on the inside if something goes on because it's not meant to be controlled from the inside. It's controlled remotely. Um, the... Virgin Galactic space plane is all, it's, there are two pilots aboard that are in charge of it. So typically it's more of just making sure you're oriented and aware. And then there's also currently a lot of sort of fun, fluffy experience, right? So like each one of them has their own like pre-launch few days where you hang out with your family and it's really luxurious. And it's like an experience, not just going to space, but there's a whole experience. And the idea there is, of course, people have paid for something and we're going to provide them that value from the minute they buy their ticket all the way till they get back on earth. And there's a big party. And that's a whole thing that we, we do as a company to ensure that people have that experience. In terms of technology, it varies a lot between the different companies. They each have their own system that they're, they've built. So it's Typically, rockets or space planes or balloons are your options. That's how you could think of it. Oh, my gosh. Unless you want to pay a whole lot of money and go to the International Space Station, but that's a whole other experience. Oh, my gosh. Like, in the future, have you seen the movie Dune? Yeah. Will we have spaceships like those huge spaceships they have, do you think? 
if we don't destroy our planet before we get to that point in human history, yes, that's like a very doomsday way to say it. I mean, and that's the interesting thing about space is it's hard to not be optimistic because you can see that we're on the precipice of becoming a multiplanetary species. That's Elon Musk's whole life mission. And we're building these technologies that are going to unlock that capability. But we have a very serious concern here on Earth. So, you know, we have to not get into a nuclear war. We have to establish multi-planetary systems of habitability to be able to have humans on other like on the moon and on mars and eventually like europa or wherever we send people we can't do that until we solve some of our problems here on earth or we will everything will go more slowly until we figure out some things here on earth it's so true if we're still struggling to solve our problems here on earth it's hard to imagine how we can function societally like beyond earth mm-hmm. um but we're ge- we're going to get into the grittiness in a bit first i want to ask just sort of like what kind of space tourism experiences we can expect in the future. Because I have seen space tourism described in different ways. So in one way I've seen it described, it's just going to the edge of the ozone layer for a few minutes or heading to space station, like you mentioned, or it could even be walking on the moon potentially. How hypothetical are these tourism experiences? And could you paint a picture of like what the space tourism landscape will look like in the coming years? So there are a variety of space tourism experiences you can have, including some on Earth. And I think those often get overlooked, but they are worth keeping in mind, especially if you are very interested in space, but you don't have the funds to go to space in the next few decades, or you got to start saving now to be able to go in a few decades. Um, So you could go to something like Space Camp, or there's a Mars habitat being built in Spain, where you can go spend three days doing Mars missions in a cave in Spain. There's a luxury space camp that's being built, I believe, in Florida... And these are all Earth-based simulations of what we might experience once we develop more habitats in other parts of the solar system. So that's the Earth-based level. And then there's suborbital, which is what you were describing and what we typically talk about with Virgin Galactic or Blue Origin, which is going to the edge of space, being able to see the curve of the Earth, but not necessarily going into space for multiple days. It's usually just a short trip. Then there is orbital space tourism, which is going to the International Space Station or going on a multi-day mission. So I believe that Jason Isaacman, who did the Inspiration4 mission last year, has bought another launch to do a multi-day trip in space. There's actually been several multi-day trips at this point already, but he's just bought another one that he did. He's going to do another kind of giveaway for that. Then there is multi-planetary space tourism, which is obviously in the very distant future where we have Mars and you can spend you know, half the year to travel to and from Mars and spend a few weeks on Mars. And that's a very distant future, but it is theoretically possible. Uh, Right now, what you can do is Earth-based, suborbital, and orbital, because you can go onto the International Space Station. There is... um, there's a Japanese billionaire who bought uh, an entire dragon capsule to go around the moon. That's going to be several days. Those those are possible. Those are those are happening within the next few years. Wow, and those are all going to be very expensive. I'm assuming. Yeah, we actually don't like if you want to do the International Space Station. I believe the current standing price is fifty five million dollars for ten <gasps> days or something like that. Like it's what? a big investment. It is not for even. I would say not even for the the quote, ordinary millionaire to be able to spend that kind of money. Yes or no, is the space tourism. We're going like so off topic right now. When I was in Vegas, my friends and I rented a car and we drove like out to this town called Rachel in Nevada. 
And it's like right on the outskirts of Area 51, where supposedly there are aliens. And this town is like truly, I think the population is like 40 people. It's very small. And it's just all alien themed. And my friends and I made tinfoil hats to wear on our heads and wore alien (laughs) outfits. And it is one of my favorite memories from going to Vegas. And it had nothing to do with Vegas. (laughs) Does that count as space tourism, would you say? Uh, I will give it to you, but it's a stretch for sure. I mean, we we haven't really talked on aliens because I keep getting, weirdly in my life right now, I feel like people are very acutely aware that aliens might be out there because I keep getting asked about aliens. And I'm like, of course there's aliens. They're just smart enough not to come to us until we figure out our own planet first. Like they, they're watching from very far away, which is the why. Like if you see something happening to someone far away, you don't, and it's bad, you don't go over and get in the middle of it. You're like, let me wait and see how this goes first before I get involved. But uh, yeah, I'll give you that one. Because I, I think the extraterrestrial highway in Area 51 is fascinating and it is it is a different kind of space tourism, right? It, or astrotourism. It is certainly related to space. It is a little bit out there. It's not for everyone. But then again, astrotourism isn't for everyone. Not everyone's going to prioritize that kind of experience when they travel to somewhere like Vegas or any big city. And that's okay. Everyone can have different interests in travel. It's still all travel. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you knew it was the extraterrestrial highway because I realized afterwards I should probably say what this is. Really. Oh, I got you. Don't worry. <laughs> Erin, there's one big question that I have about all of these billionaires going up into space. Oh yeah? What is it? I need to know if they got travel insurance before hopping into these rocket ships. (laughs) To be honest, I have no clue if they did. There's just one thing I know for sure, and that is that World Nomads travel insurance is definitely a must for all our adventures here on Earth. You can't predict what's going to happen on your next trip. And so travel insurance is designed to help you cover your expenses if something unexpected and unforeseen goes wrong. World Nomads provides coverage to more than 100 countries for solo travelers, couples, and families. If things go wrong on your travels, World Nomads will be there to provide the emergency assistance you need so you can carry on with your trip. Benefits limits, conditions, and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get a quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes. So there's a lot to be excited about when it comes to space tourism, but like we touched on lightly before, there's also some concerns when it comes to the impact. Obviously, one major concern is the environmental impact because the emissions released by rockets are considerable. Eloise Marais, an associate professor of physical geography at the University College London, told The Guardian that quote, for one long haul plane flight, it's one to three tons of carbon dioxide per passenger. One rocket launch, in contrast, produces about 200 to 300 tons for a flight of around four passengers. So obviously, this is an issue. If space tourism takes off, how do we address this issue of carbon? Well, it's important to note that currently, I actually did a little bit of research for this just to be prepared. Uh, In 2018, which admittedly is now four years ago, there was a fellow space enthusiast, his name, he goes by Everyday Astronaut, and he determined that global carbon emissions from rockets represent way, 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 way less than 1%, like less than 0.1, 0.001. So in terms of the global market of carbon emissions, it's actually a very small portion. Now, rocket 
launches are increasing in frequency. And that's what we have to worry about is if we go from launching 100 times a year to launching 1000 times a year, that percentage starts to be meaningful. But it does nothing, it it pales in comparison to cars and automobiles. So what I think will be the case is that we need to transition our Earth-based technologies to more sustainable fuels and energy sources so that we can afford to become a multi-planetary species currently until we find a more efficient fuel for rockets. The hard part about rockets is that they just require a lot of force to get away from gravity. Gravity is a beast to try and overcome. And there is no better option currently than what than the various combinations of components that each company is using. I will say that I personally take the balance of scales for the scientific developments that come about as a result of space exploration and the psychological change that occurs in a person by going to space and the amount of environmental positive impact they can have when they return. I balance those very well against the amount of carbon emissions that we currently have caused by space launches. That is obviously a different math for each person. But to me, what I've seen in looking historically and at what people say when they come back from space is that if we can convince 50% of these ultra wealthy people who go to space to come back and commit parts of their estates and their trust to environmental issues or developing sustainable technology and energy, that's what's going to move the needle. It's getting the people who have the resources to see that they need to spend the resources on environmental sustainability because they went to space. So they kind of have to spend that carbon to come back and do the good carbon work, like carbon neutralizing work. Um, I will say that the news coming out of various climate change scientists is is not promising that there's much we can do at all, in which case we need to figure out the multiplanetary thing as fast as possible. But we also want to be responsible in balancing that and ensuring that there is a positive impact for these flights. It's not just a vanity thing. It's not just an Instagram thing, which right now it's not. And so we have an opportunity in the first generation of passengers to hopefully harness that for good in developing new technologies and energies. Are you saying that if we can transition to more green energy like here on Earth, then our budget for spending carbon to go up to space um, becomes more manageable? Like that would be one of the steps we can take? Yeah. So for example, that same article that I'm looking at, which is from Inverse, uh, says that, you know, in 2018, rocket launches were 0.000059% of the global carbon emissions that year, but airplanes were 2.4%. So if we could find a more fuel efficient use, uh, a more carbon efficient way to fly or to drive, which I don't even know what driving is, but I guarantee it's, it's higher than flying, right, by lot, that would give us, as you said, the budget to be able to afford to have carbon emissions for rocket launches at a much higher scale than we currently have. I mean, whenever I see anything, I'm just like, we just need to get onto solar and, you know, <laughs> yeah. electric vehicles like that is such an obvious opportunity to solve a lot of the energy problems that we're having in the world right now. And we're, we're not mm-hmm. quite there yet. <laughs> we're not. But actually, in the last season of Alpaca My Bags, we talked to a professor from a university here in Canada who who actually made us feel quite hopeful. And he was saying, like, especially in the scope of the tourism industry, this is becoming like an issue at the forefront. And, and the transition, especially to EVs, is happening. And also for flights. So there is hope there. So you mentioned the positive impacts like on a personal level that a person has when they go to space and then return to Earth. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Like what what would those positive impacts be? And if there's like people who have come back who've talked about it, I'd love to hear. Yes. Yeah. So this is a this is one of my favorite parts about space in general is that it's not 100%, but it's a pretty high percentage of people who go to space are psychologically changed by the experience. So not just 
physically change that, you know, we have a lot of data into like how your genetics change and how your body changes, your physiology changes when you're in space. But there's actually a psychological impact known as the overview effect. And that might be familiar to some listeners, which is that when you get this overview of Earth, when you see our planet from space, even on a small low flight like Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic, and you see that razor thin line of our atmosphere, that's all that protects our planet, that shifts something in you psychologically. It changes your whole perspective and you come back realizing that that is a precious, we have a precious, precious thing with our planet. That's what I I struggle with personally is like, there's no backup. There's nothing, else. there's no, they call no planet B. Like there's no other place that we even know that life exists in the entire universe at this point. I am fairly confident life does exist in other parts of the universe, but we haven't found it. And that means we cannot afford to let what we have be destroyed by ourselves when we're in control of the decision. So the overview effect basically does that to people. It, it, it opens their eyes to that fact that they have an obligation to come back and protect the planet. And so typically astronauts, who are the majority of people who have been to space, will come home and commit themselves to environmental work. They will begin doing the environmental work that they see is necessary to protect the planet that they now know is so fragile that we just don't see when we're stuck down here on top of it. Yeah, so it just shifts your perspective. Although I have to say, like, I would hope that a person could come to this understanding without having to go up into our ozone layer and like see the planet. Like, I would hope that the average person would understand we need to protect our planet. But it does sound like a really transformative experience. And I'm very mm -hmm. intrigued. Yeah, that's what I want. I don't know that I need it, like, because I can articulate the effect of the effort. But I'd also like to experience it anyway, just to see if it is bigger than just like, as I said, William Shatner went to space and he came back and he was awestruck. He was unable to speak. He couldn't even articulate what the experience was for him, which is that's how you know something big has happened to a person is when they can't even articulate it. That's yeah. what I want to do. Have you ever had that experience traveling? I know you travel a lot. Yeah, mine is all, it's almost always related to space though. So for me, <laughs> um, seeing the Milky Way always does yeah. that. I think that there's sort of a, a, a lighter version of that overview effect that can occur when we see the Milky Way because we get a sense of, oh my gosh, there are literally billions of galaxies and we're in a galaxy and we're just one planet in one solar system in a galaxy. So that perspective shift can happen. And then the, the Northern Lights are also really cool. The, oh, the one other time it has happened, and I hope that people take advantage of an opportunity to see this if they ever can while traveling, is a solar eclipse. If you can see a solar eclipse, what that does is because the moon moves in front of the sun, you suddenly get the context of there being literal planets moving in our solar system, right? Like the moon, a thing, which is a real thing, a real 3D object in space, it doesn't look that way when we look at it normally, moves in front of the sun, which is this whole other 3D object. And then we're on a 3D object all in line. And it's like this very, I mean, that's the one where I would say I was in a group when I saw the one in 2017. And it was primeval experience. People were unable to speak, making strange noises. I don't know how to describe <laughs> but It's like, if you if you ever, do, there'll be like gasps and things and vocalizations that are nonverbal, that it just taps into something deep in our brains that opens our minds about, oh my gosh, this is something much bigger than I ever could imagine existed before. Yeah. And when you think about the context of history, about how often this has been written about for literally thousands and thousands of years, it's it's kind of fun to think about how this is such a universal experience, like throughout humanity, to just be amazed by space. Yeah. Well, and it's fun to read about the history of interpretations of things like solar eclipses, where like, they would, they knew one was going to happen. And so they would like replace the king with a false king for the day, because they <laughs> thought it might curse him. Or like, they would change laws in regard to this 
this experience having occurred. And that's because it's such a monumental shift in your perception. You're like, wait, we got to do, do something different now. I just realized that there are objects in the solar system moving around all the time. <laughs> Big ones. I'm trying to remember where I was during the 2017 one. And I'm, I do recall like everyone going outside, but I don't remember it getting dark. So you, if you were in Canada, you only saw a partial eclipse. I would highly recommend traveling for totality because totality is where you get that true. I mean, I remember realizing like it was like <laughs> it was like the Death Star. Like it's a 3D. The moon is a Death Star. It's like a 3D object. It has shadow moving around it as it blocks the sun. And it just gives you a totally different perspective. Do you know when the next one is and where we would have to go for totality? Yes, the next major one in North America is going to be in 2024. I believe it's April 2024. And it's going to take a path from Mexico up across Texas, up across the like Great Lakes states. It crosses into Montreal and then out over the Atlantic. From there. <gasps> That's doable for us. We're very close to Montreal. I'm going, I'm backtracking a little bit, but I just wanted to ask your thoughts on this. Um, Cause obviously like space tourism is going to be a massive privilege that's afforded to mainly wealthy people, like in the near future. Do you think like choosing to go on a space flight is something that people should be considering from the perspective of carbon emissions? Like should that even factor into their decision? Or do you think because the budget and like output of carbon is actually quite minuscule compared comparatively that like it shouldn't be a concern? I would hope that people who have the means to go to space currently are doing some sort of work in the environmental sphere already. And that if not, recognizing that this space trip will have will increase their personal balance of how much carbon they've used in their lifetime would encourage them at that point too. But I don't think that anybody who's doing it is deciding to do it whether or not based on the carbon emissions. Yeah, that's a really good point. I wonder like if you can pay, um, I forget the phrase. Carbon offsetting. Carbon offsetting. I guess the carbon offset for a flight to space would be really high. It's probably not as high as, as people even would. It's, it sounds like a lot because it's, what was that? 75, 300 divided by four, 75 tons. I'll bet most of us hit 75 tons much faster than we realize from our everyday activities like heating our homes and driving our cars and stuff. Maybe not like in a 15 minute trip, obviously, which is what space tourism currently does. But I'll bet many of us have that balance already. On that note, I want to talk about another major concern around travel to space, which is equity. In 1992, Mae Jemison became the first woman of color to go to space. This was more than two decades after Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. And just two other African-American women have flown in space since. Of the 350 astronauts in NASA's, NASA, I've never said that out loud, NASA's 61-year history, only six are black women. Given that gender and racial diversity is already an issue in space programs, what do you think we can expect in space tourism? I'm assuming like there's going to be lots of barriers of access to space tourism. There's clearly financial barriers. Can we expect inequity in space tourism? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. And I think that's pretty clear when you look at the makeups of most of these space tourism flights so far, is it's a lot of older, wealthy white men, which is exactly the same breakdown we see in most of the halls of power. I mean, it's a compounding issue, right? It is a matter of who has the means to go to space 
in terms of financial resources, just to earn the financial resources, those areas of our lives are currently being gated away from people of color and women. And so it's no surprise that a woman is much less likely, much less a black woman, the kind of the double whammy, to have accomplished enough to earn the funds to be able to pay. It's just an unfortunate reality of the way the system is built right now and the inequity in that system. That's not to say that that won't happen. There are Black women who have been incredibly successful and may choose to invest their success in going to space. But unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever see a representative, well, I don't think we'll see a representative flight for a long time because it's going to take a long time for the cost to come down enough that it can be anywhere near representative of the way that society is currently broken down financially. Yeah. And do you have a pulse at all on how the industry is talking about this, if it's even being talked about, if if this is like something that's of concern to the companies that are actually like building these space rockets and running these flights? I would say I often see those in the media sector and especially those who are maybe not traditional media, but are you know often interviewed and kind of seen as uh, thought leaders in space tourism will comment on the general demographic breakdowns of flights. But it's not typically something anyone wants to broadcast loudly. I don't know how to describe it. Like nobody wants to be the person who's like, um, can we get some diversity up in here? Because also I think that people... I would say I think that people want to earn their place to go to space, right? They want to be like, yeah, I made I made all my money and I get to spend it. Like I've earned that position. I don't just want to be given it because I'm, you need to match some, you know, representative percentage of people of color. I don't want to be the token black person or the token Asian person. That's not what I work so hard to accomplish in my life. I obviously say that as a person of uh, a white person. So I may be incorrect entirely. And frankly, if I could give away tickets to space and people would take them, I would do it. But uh, I do see people commenting on it. I don't see a lot of pickup on those stories, but it is definitely something that feels, to me, feels obvious every time I see an announcement. I'm like, Are, is there no one else? Like, can we please start to make this? Because we know the representation matters so much. So if young Black people or young people of color in any country in the world don't see anyone like them going to space, they don't think it's even an option. It is if they accomplish the financial milestones to get there, which is unfortunately gatekept in other ways. But it's possible they're just not seeing that. And we know that that has a detrimental impact on the achievement of people in minority groups. So I would love to see a little bit more. Though, you know, of course, we had um, Cyan Proctor. She is a she's a scientist in one of the space sciences, and she went on the Inspiration4 mission. And she was chosen specifically because she's an excellent science communicator, not because she's a Black woman. She just happens to be an, a Black woman who's an excellent science communicator and opened up a whole world for people to see that people who look like her were welcome in space and encouraged to apply for these kinds of jobs on earth to get there. Well, I do hope that it becomes more of an active discussion because I feel like once you're discussing it, there's more pressure put on like the powers that be that would have more control over how much diversity we see going up. And space. you asked if the companies care. I don't think the companies they care. Don't. The companies they want money. They, they need money. Yeah. They should care, but they need money to keep running these expensive flights. So they are not... They're not being choosy. They're not as worried about whether or not. I mean, and especially I think, you know, Blue Origin doesn't worry so much about their uh, PR standing. They know that Jeff Bezos has taken a lot of heat for a lot of things over the course of his career and has always managed to come out better off financially. So they're not worried that negative press about diversity on his flights is going to actually impact their customers wanting right. to go. And I guess there's not much competition in these industries at this stage. Mm -hmm. It's not a monopoly, but it's not far no. from one. So Yeah, yeah. I think we're so used to looking up at the night sky 
that many of us forget that actually we can enjoy space from Earth. I know that you're really passionate about talking about astrotourism. Could you explain what it is and how people can take part in it? Yeah, so astrotourism is actually what I primarily focus on until I myself get to take a flight to space and can speak with experience. Uh, and astrotourism is just any sort of tourist activities on Earth which are space-oriented, related. That would mean stargazing, meteor showers, going to see the Northern Lights, going to watch a rocket launch, which is something that anyone can do. Uh, if you can get yourself to Florida, Virginia, California, there are rocket launches happening very frequently, even Texas. Yeah, Texas and New Mexico, that's where the space tourism companies are launching from. And then eclipses, which we also talked about. Those are kind of the big ones that I typically encourage people to do research into. So they're very different experiences because each one is a different way of getting a perspective on space on Earth, but they are, I mean, the night sky is something that isn't, it's a resource that's available to everyone. It's part of our human heritage. And many people have never seen the Milky Way. They've never seen a truly unblemished night sky. And that just takes a little bit of planning. So it might mean instead of going to a big city on your next trip, you plan to go somewhere very far away from cities and you spend three nights out in a cabin where you can turn off the lights and just let all of that wild magnitude of the universe shine down on you and blow your mind wide open and get some perspective. I love I love the night sky. I find it, it always helps me remember my human problems and my earthly problems are just that and they are quite small. Not to say that each of us isn't important and big in our own way, but we are small in the grand scheme and that actually puts things in a good perspective for me personally when I'm struggling with something. Absolutely. I've had that experience too. And I have to say, in Ontario, where we're based, the provincial park system actually has designated dark sky preserves. So like for anyone in Toronto, there's one at Point Pelee National Park, and they have specified nights that you can go and stay in the park late into the night. And they provide you like context and tools to actually like really observe the sky. And it's really an amazing experience that I recommend people do. Just Google dark sky preserve near wherever you live and like, I'm sure one will come up. Yep. Actually, I was just in Death Valley National Park down in California recently. And it was funny. I was with my friend, uh, a fellow travel writer who travels with me a lot. And typically what we do is we do a trip that's hiking and stargazing. So we pick a national park and we go do a combo and we went to the stargazing talk by the park ranger. And it, she kept, she kept being like laughing. And she's like, every time she points something out, they go, Oh, <laughs> like everyone in the audience makes that sound. And I was like, yeah, Marissa, they've never seen it before. That's why most people have never seen the night sky. It's true. Yeah. And so they are awed by it. And that's great. We need people to do that because then they protect the night sky. They understand that it's a valuable thing to experience. If we don't experience it, we're not going to value it. That's the hard yeah. part about humans. That was one of my favorite parts about going to Wadi Rum in Jordan, like out into the desert, just seeing the night sky at night out there. Oh, it was incredible. See, it's I funny really you say that. To... I'm going to Jordan next week. <gasps> you are? <laughs> yeah. Oh my I, um, gosh. I'm so I, excited for you. I was supposed to lead a tour, an astronomy-oriented tour in Jordan <gasps> in March of 2020, and it obviously got canceled. And so I'm doing a, a trial run uh, next week. And then I will hopefully be offering my tour again in November of 2022. That's what year we're in right now. <laughs> if you're interested in learning more, assuming there are still spots on the tour, which I, I have to keep the group sizes small just so that we can have an intimate experience. But I hope to offer the tour again in early 2023. So if November sold out, 23 might be available. And it's called the Jordan Stars to Mars Tour. So we do stargazing and we go to Wadi Rum, which looks like Mars and was used in the film The Martian. And if you go to my website, spacetourismguide.com, it's up in the menu bar. So right at the top of the page, it'll say, join me on my Jordan tour, and it'll have all the information you need. 
the goal there is as kind of what we opened with, it's to introduce people to the Middle East and Jordanian culture and Arabic astronomy, and also take them to places where I know the night sky is truly stunning so that they can get kind of all of that. Plus Jordan, which is Wadi Rum and Petra and Amman and Jarash and the Dead Sea and all the great daytime experiences. So it's like, we do a full day of touring and then we stay up late and stargaze or learn something about the night sky. And I love that kind of combination. And Jordan has that perfect combination for people. It really, really does. And Wadi Rum is just spectacular. It's it's one of those landscapes that like you'll never forget in your lifetime. And I'm referencing Dune so much because I'm very obsessed with this movie, but they, they shot part of it there. And that's my favorite part of the movie by far because it's just such incredible scenery. Well, thank you so much, Valerie. This has been so fun. Before we let you go, where can people find you in case they'd like to read some of your work, go on one of your tours and anything else you'd like to talk about? Yeah, they can find me on my website, which is spacetourismguide.com. I already mentioned that with regard to the Jordan tour, which I hope people just come check out and see what the itinerary looks like. I mean, go do it on your own. You can do it on your own, too. Uh, And then, yeah, that's where I publish all of my resources for astrotourism. I also write for Forbes. So if you are a Forbes user, reader, whatever, if you go into science, I'm actually over in the science section, not the travel section. You can find articles by me occasionally, typically focused exclusively on the news and space tourism. And then if you love space and and or someone in your life loves space, I actually wrote a book with Lonely Planet called Dark Skies, A Practical Guide to Astrotourism. And it is a bit like a coffee table book, like coffee table book meets guidebook. So it's got a bunch of dark sky locations across the planet. I was going to say the sky, across the planet, <laughs> as well as information about things like seeing the aurora, rocket launches, space tourism, etc. And that's available on all the major online retailers. Or you can typically go to your independent bookstore and ask and they can get a copy for you if they don't have them in stock. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, I hope you get to alpaca your bags safely and soon.